0: But, listeners, these days we take number crunching for granted. If you're stuck on a difficult math problem or in a restaurant trying to divvy up the bill, all you need to do is whip out your smartphone. But for centuries, addition, division, and multiplication were painful and time consuming. Just how painful and how time consuming is something our next guest, Keith Houston, reveals in his new book empire of the sum. Keith has appeared into the inner workings of all sorts of counting devices and he charts how most of us have evolved from adding up on fingers and sticks to doing trickier sums on the abacus and the pocket calculator. I'm delighted that Keith's on the blower from Birmingham to take us through the history of counting. Keith, welcome to the Little Wilders program. Let's begin by going way back in time, long before the calculator, the slide rule, or the abacus. What's the first recorded instance of human counting?
1: That is a very good question. I think um, the best way to answer it is to say, what is the uh, first known evidence of human counting? And... As far as I'm aware, the earliest known, I think what it's called as a mathematical artefact, is a baboon femur that was found in a cave in South Africa. Um, it's called the labombo bone. And it has, I think it's either 27 or 29 notches carved across the bone, apparently either by four different people or at four different times. So this, whatever quantity this was, it was important to record it or sufficiently important to record it, that someone went back to this bone three times to add yet more notches to it. That's about 43,000 years old. I think that is probably the earliest evidence we have of counting, I guess.
0: And previously, I guess, we just uh, counted on our fingers and toes. We did. There
1: have been some different ethnographic surveys of uh, and linguistic surveys of how... Different people and peoples count. So we 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 count in tens, really. That's that's what you'd say is the base of our number system. So that's you know, five fingers on or five digits in one hand, five digits on the other. But different people using different languages sometimes count in different bases. Some use fives, I guess, because you've got five digits on each of your hands and feet. Others use twenties because that's all of your hands and feet together. And then some other people started to add in different parts of the body. Um, they would uh, use their fingers, thumbs, their, their wrists, their elbows, different parts of their arms, um, even their, their nipples and their sternum and so on. And you can count higher and higher. And apparently there's one particular group of people from uh, Papua New Guinea who added their genitalia to the count and uh, they were able to count up to 33 using body parts alone.
0: Wasn't the cubit of uh, Noah fame based on the forearm?
1: I think it is, yes. Although I suppose you could draw a distinction between counting, which is um, a, a unitless way of recording how many of something you have, and units of measurement. But it's a really good point. Our bodies are very handy when it comes to... yeah. How does a human relate to the world? They relate to it through their body.
0: Keith, who came up with the idea of using tokens for counting instead of body parts?
1: That seems to have been, or at least the best evidence for it, is people in Mesopotamia. So between uh, the River Tigris and the river, river Euphrates in what is now Iran and Iraq, this is where uh, humans first started um farming, really. Um, In some ways, it can be thought of as not the earliest human civilizations, but one of the earliest points where we started to do things in a slightly more organized way. And sometime before 3300 BC or thereabouts, it looks as though some people in Mesopotamia were using little clay tokens to record quantities. So you might have a token of a particular shape that means one bushel of barley, or perhaps it means um, the, the labor um, performed by one person in one day. And then larger tokens could be larger quantities and different shapes of tokens meant different uh, different things that were being counted. So this appears to have been where the idea of having some physical correspondence between an abstract thing, a thing to be counted, and a, a, a token or an actual physical object that represents that thing comes from.
0: Tell me about the base 60 count, because that uh, obviously has uh, has had all sorts of a domino effect throughout history.
1: It has. So these these same people in Mesopotamia seem to have been counting in base 60. So what what that means is um, we counted ones, tens, hundreds, thousands, and so on. They would count in ones, 60s, 3,600s, and so on. And I don't think anyone's got a really good explanation as to why they did this, but given that we think that people started counting using their fingers, there's a theory that says, well, I've got five digits on, let's say, my right hand, and I've got uh, 12 knuckles, I mean, more than 12 knuckles, I guess, depending on how you cut them, on my other hand. So if I use one digit, my thumb or one of my fingers to point to one of the knuckles on my other hand, I can count to 60 just using my hands. And this seems to have been reflected in the values that these tokens were used to represent because the tokens themselves gave rise to cuneiform writing, that kind of wedge-shaped writing impressed into clay. Um, But that by 60, of course,
0: leads Mm. on to clock hours, uh, 60 minutes, Mm. 60 seconds.
1: Indeed, and also I think it, uh, it feeds into the idea of 360 degrees In a circle. So yeah, just in the same way that um, decimal counting, base 10 numbering is quite prevalent. Base 60 kind of hides in a lot of different places.
0: Now, could you say the abacus was a crucial uh, stepping stone in the history of counting? And I've always been told that that was uh, thanks to the Chinese. But um, you are not persuaded that's the case.
1: I'm not sure that anyone is entirely persuaded that it's the case. There is a whole... A whole pile of things came together in order for the, the abacus to come about. So the Sumerians or the, the Mesopotamians were already counting using tokens, and there are linguistic clues that they may have had people whose jobs or whose job it was to act as a kind of accountant using some sort of counting tool. And there's, there's little physical evidence, but the written evidence would suggest that they were using something that we might call a counting board. So If you imagine an abacus, it's a frame or um, a few few pieces of wood put together to hold beads in ones, tens, hundreds, thousands, and so on. Accounting board is the same thing, but it's just a set of vertical lines or horizontal lines drawn on a surface. So you can imagine taking a piece of paper and drawing a line that represents ones, and then you can put tokens on that. So I can put one token or two tokens or three tokens and so on. And then you can draw a line that represents tens, And one token on that means 10. Two tokens means 20. And you can just add more lines until you have as many as you need. And that's the essence of an abacus. And I think there is a theory that the Mesopotamians had something like this, had counting boards. The problem is there's very little physical evidence. The first really good evidence of this sort of tool comes from Greece from about 300 BC uh, in the form of what's called the Salamis tablet. This is a big piece of marble with lines. Um, inscribed across it. And instead of using numbers, it was used for accounting because the the little characters that identify what each line means refer to particular denominations of Greek coinage. So this was was an accountant's tool to reckon with different quantities of money. Then the Romans seem to have something quite similar. There are these tiny little brass plates that have survived, just a handful of them, uh, from ancient Rome. And they have slots carved in them or punched in them. And in those slots are little buttons that can slide up and down. So these are called Roman hand abacuses. They're just tiny little portable abacuses. And then over in China, the first wire abacus isn't described properly until about the 15th century. But again, there are hints of abacus like things in China and about 200 CE. So counting boards and abacuses are all, they all work on the same principles. And it's relatively difficult to figure out who actually invented them.
0: Well, you make the the point that either the idea of the Roman abacus travelled east or the idea of the Chinese abacus travelled west.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's if you already have the concept of a counting board, and the Chinese did have something a bit like a counting board before they had abacuses. I guess it's just it's quite a logical um, step to say I have these loose tokens and, you know, on my piece of my piece of wood or my piece of parchment or even just the lines I've scratched in the ground. Can I put the two together? Can I have some sort of robust portable tool that I can use to to reckon with in a slightly more convenient way? And certainly in China, this became incredibly popular in the West. I think counting boards and counting tokens were the preferred way to do things for hundreds or, you know, more than a thousand years. But in China and then Japan and Korea, for example, and Russia, in fact, the abacus became really popular.
0: There's a fascinating moment in your book just after World War II when you describe a maths competition between an American soldier and a Japanese postman.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there is. So Japan had this had this heritage or culture of using the abacus, uh, but then in the West we kind of gave up on on counting boards and abacuses towards the end of the the medieval period, and we started to think about mechanical calculators. So there's a long there's a long line of uh, people, some very interesting people, trying to invent mechanical calculators, and eventually they become fairly common. Uh, so if you had been an accountant or uh, let's say an engineer or anyone who had to to reckon with lots of numbers who had to do lots of calculations. And let's say the first half of the 20th century, you might have had a mechanical adding machine or calculator. So these look a bit like typewriters. Well, depending on what model, I guess, or what kind you're talking about. They look a bit like typewriters, lots of buttons on the front. They have a kind of carriage that runs across the top that records the the cumulative total of the number you're working with, a bit like a, an electronic calculator. And so this, these, these were not especially unusual. And in fact, there were electrically driven versions of these in order to save the user from the labor of having to turn uh, turn a crank handle or pull a lever in order to, to, to perform a calculation. A little electrical motor would do the same thing. And so this competition in Japan, and, uh, just after the Second World War, was between Private Tom Woods um, of the US Army, I think, and uh, a Japanese employee of the... Ministry of Postal Administration. His name was Kiyoshi Matsuzaki, but apparently his nickname was The Hands. And (laughs) so he used his abacus, and uh, Private Tom Woods used an electrical calculator. And they had four different competitions, Uh, one for addition, one for subtraction, one for multiplication, and one for division. And uh, Kiyoshi Matsuzaki won all of them apart from multiplication. (laughs) And which is, yeah, which is crazy. But there are a whole series of rules and shortcuts that you can use with an abacus to speed things up. And he had just internalized all of these things. Kyoshi Matsuzaki was able to do lots of the lots of the um, intermediate steps in his head. He's able to draw on lots of mnemonics uh, in terms of how he approached these problems. And yeah, it just turns out he was faster. In fact, I think even today there are still... Specific abacus schools in japan which are quite i think i think they're seen by a lot of people as being quite useful it teaches you how to do mental um, arithmetic in a very rigorous way and so a lot of school children i think are encouraged to do this by their parents in order to do better at school so if you're good with an abacus imagine how good you're going to be with an electronic calculator.
0: i was talking to simon winchester a couple of weeks ago about his fears of ai and how if we hand over our mental processes to this amazing technology you know the the human brain may well atrophy there's a sort of an echo of that in what you're saying
1: i think there there are echoes of this all through history um when the egyptians first started writing things down there's um you know in all in all of these in all cases usually some some momentous invention or development comes along. And it's very rare that you can point to a person and say, this person invented it, especially before there was writing to record this, this kind of thing. So the Egyptians took about a hundred years, um, they developed writing about a hundred years after the after the Mesopotamians. And that the, the Egyptian, the legend or the myth was that the god Thoth had given writing to the Egyptians. This is, it was so miraculous. It must have been, there must have been a divine, uh, divine intervention that meant that the Egyptians could write and an Egyptian king received uh, you know legendarily received the gift of writing from Thoth and he immediately complained about it he said if you help us to write things down we're going to start forgetting things so even the very first information technology had us worried about this stuff and we seem to be okay <laughs> we seem to have survived that and then calculators came along and in the 70s there was a lot of um especially in the States where I think they were quite quick to adopt calculators in education. A lot of parents were worried, ironically, because these parents all use calculators as part of their jobs. But they worried that if their children had access to calculators in schools, they would they wouldn't learn how to how to do maths. And to be honest, my arithmetic is terrible. But I then went on to do, you know, even with terrible arithmetic, I did an astrophysics degree and I managed So, yeah, in simplifying certain things, we get better at others and not having to think about oral traditions to remember everything. I can write it down and it's there where I left it. Or without having to care about how to do long division, I have this device that does it for me. It lets us focus on other things. It lets us progress to other things.
0: This is LNL on RN, and I'm chatting to Keith Houston, author of Empire of the Sum, S-U-M. Nice little pun there, uh, Keith. It's about the history of counting. Now, I'm familiar with the French philosopher Pascal uh, being the inventor of uh, Pascal's wager, the theory that, uh, that a rational person should bet on the existence of God. I didn't know that Pascal also invented the calculator.
1: Yeah, he certainly invented a calculator. There was a whole... Around about the time when um, Pascal was interested in this kind of thing, and perhaps a little bit before, so the 17th century or thereabouts, there was kind of a, a general fad for, for machines, for clockwork machines. You had Rene Descartes uh, talking about how, to some extent, people are just machines, um, animals are just machines. Um, clocks are, were becoming much more prevalent and much more sophisticated at that time. And so there was a general ability, like as a as, as a culture, we, be, we were capable of building more and more sophisticated mechanical and clockwork devices. And so Pascal was one of a few people around about the same time. I think the first was technically um, a German called Wilhelm Schickard who built what was called a calculating clock, which was an adding machine. He, he built one just before Pascal, but his machine was, was lost and his designs were lost until quite recently. So Pascal is the one that really everyone talks about. Um, As you say, he was famous for Pascal's wager, but he was quite a polymath. He came up with a bunch of different mathematical innovations. There's Pascal's triangle, Pascal's theorem, Pascal's law. And he was also a bit of a physicist. He did a lot of work to do with air pressure and vacuum. So there's a, a modern unit of pressure called the Pascal, which is named after him. But where the calculator came from was that his father worked as a tax collector and Pascal wanted to help him with all the calculations. And so he decided he would build a mechanical adding machine. And so he got started on this and he built, it's it's really hard to describe this thing. It's a box, maybe the size of a shoebox with a series of dials on the front. And each dial is, you know, units, tens, hundreds, and so on. And you turn the dial, and the number, the number of clicks that you turn it are added to a little accumulating dial. And if you add, let's say, one to the first dial and one to the second dial, you'll then see eleven at the top of your device. <laughs> and you can add another one to the units dial, and you'll see twelve at the top of your device, and so on. But the difficult thing was the carries. So every time a dial clicked over from nine back to zero, it had to push the next dial along one space. And this was it worked in his machine, but not always perfectly. Um, and so he worked and worked and worked on this machine. And eventually he wrote to, I think, the king at the time and said, you know, I'm working on this thing. It's very important. This could be very, very useful to, to French society. I'd like a patent or a monopoly on this device. And he got one. And then he pretty much gave up developing it.
0: How extraordinary. Now let's jump from one culture to another. There's France. Let's go to Scotland because I'd like you to tell me about the, uh, the slide rule.
1: Absolutely. So the slide rule is one of those things that was really, really common for a long time, for centuries, and now has almost completely disappeared. So slide rules look a bit like normal rulers for drawing straight lines or for measuring distances. But the little ticks, the little marks on them are not, as you would say, linear. So on a normal ruler, the distance between zero and one is the same as the distance between one and two and the distance between two and three and so on. But on a slide rule, the numbers get closer and closer together. So one and two are quite far apart, two and three are a bit closer, and so on, until you get up to nine and ten. And they're very close together indeed. And this is because they use what's called a logarithmic scale. This is a particular mathematical invention or function, as it would be called, that was developed by a Scottish guy called John Napier. He was the, the Lord of Merkiston, which is uh, a castle that still still stands in Edinburgh. And in fact, Napier University is named after John Napier and has Merkeston Castle at the heart of its campus. Um, And so he was a philosopher, or I guess, again, another polymath. He was very, very Protestant. He wrote a book um, which was basically a massive anti-Catholic screed, uh, predicted the end of the world, conveniently just just after he died. So he never lived to find out if he was right or not. Um, He was an alchemist. Um, as a lot of a lot of people that we would call scientists today were back then. He also tried to develop some war machines for the Scottish king at the time, King James VI, um, so that he could help with uh, England's war against Spain. So he did all of these different things. But he was also an astrologer, and that also meant he was an astronomer. And he realised that astronomy is full of really complicated mathematical problems, often to do with trigonometry, to do with angles. And so he developed this thing called, or this function called, the logarithm as a way to help them with multiplication. And it's it's too difficult, I think, to describe on the radio, or perhaps I'm not up to the task. But fundamentally, logarithms allow you to add two numbers of almost any size together with just, sorry, they allow you to multiply two numbers of almost any size together using only an addition. So you look up some numbers in a book, you add them together, and you look up a third number, and you've multiplied your two large numbers. This was this was revolutionary. And gradually his, his his book of logarithms was translated into what was called a Gunter scale. So this was just a ruler with a logarithmic scale on it. And then finally into a slide rule, where you have two of these scales together and you can slide them back and forth. And with a bit of kind of juggling, you can multiply any two numbers together just by looking at values on this slide rule. It's almost like magic. When you first play with one, and um, I now have lots Courtesy of my father-in-law, he seems to sort of haunt antique shops and occasionally sends me another slide <laughs> room. And they—they really are—they're magical devices. Um, and now they're gone.
0: We were talking about Japan in 1946. Let's go back to Japan in 1950s. Tell me about two brothers who were working on what you call a revolutionary device.
1: These were the Cashio brothers. Just after the Second World War. Um, we talked earlier about the the competition between the American soldier and the Japanese postman. One of the Cashio brothers, Toshio Kashio, had read about this contest. And rather than being super patriotic and being happy for his his uh his countrymen having won the competition, he thought this mechanical or electrical calculator sounds interesting. And he wanted to build one. The company, the, the family company, made lots of different things. The first big hit had been a ring for your finger that had a cigarette holder soldered onto it. So you could smoke a cigarette when you're working or you're in, in the bath after work. So they'd made they'd made their money from this, this cigarette holding finger ring. And Toshio wanted to branch out. He wanted to try and build a mechanical calculator. But Japan didn't have the industrial base at that point to do that. And so he had worked for, um, I think it was actually the same ministry that uh, Kiyoshi Matsuzaki had worked for, but he'd been looking at electrical um, circuits for telephony. And so he built what was basically a calculator made out of what were called relays. These are little electromagnets, so they open and close if they have electrical circuits running through them, and they can then switch on other circuits and so on. The Casios built this device about the size of a desk and it was a calculator. It had, I think, 300 odd or 350 relays inside of it that clatter away as you type on this little keypad. And then at the numbers that you've calculated that you've added or subtracted or multiplied light up a little grid of numbers. This was really the first automatic electrical calculator, no moving parts, no gears, um, no cams, no levers. It was all completely automatic. And I think it made the rest of the world um, look up and uh, take notice.
0: Let's end where we began by uh, contemplating the impact of the smartphone. What happens next, Keith?
1: I have no idea. Um, (laughs) um, I, I mean, as I said, I think every time some new innovation comes along that helps us to do something more readily, we just find new ways of using it. So I have no doubt we're just going to become very skilled users of AI in the same way that we were once very skilled users of uh, pocket calculators, or spreadsheets, or abacuses, or counting boards, we'll just learn to do more. And maybe so you lucky, we'll you don't do fear
0: work. this future. You're happy to embrace it.
1: I don't. No, I'm weirdly having written a book about the history of the pocket calculator. I think I'm actually a bit of a luddite. Um, so I don't know if I fear it. I I'm somewhat interested to see how it turns out. Um, I'm not rushing to embrace it personally. But as I say, I'm a luddite and perhaps a bit old-fashioned. But I don't think it's going to be the apocalypse that, (laughs) listen to this again in five or ten years, Um, I don't think it's going to be the apocalypse that is predicted.
0: I'll pass that on to Simon Winchester. We've come a long way from uh, counting on fingers and toes, and thanks, Keith, for that was a fascinating encounter. The author is Keith Houston. His new book is called Empire of the Sum, The Rise and Reign of the Pocket Calculator, and it's published by W.W. Norton. Thanks, Keith. Thank you very much. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines
1: on the ABC Listen app.